If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. embraced it, was excited by it, jumped at the opportunity and, and used every opportunity he could to relish and support Hitler. That was Yvonne Chirat on how Germany's philosophers were enraptured with Nazism. Despite the enormous size of these boats, these were not ferries that we used on a daily basis, but these were boats built for a specific journey, uh, a grand tour, if you want. And that was Robert van der Noort on the relaunch of a Bronze Age boat. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Look out for details on all of this and much more besides on our website, which is historyextra.com. As people who spend their lives studying ethics, wisdom and morality, you might think that philosophers would be the last people to become enthusiastic supporters of a murderous regime. Nonetheless, as Yvonne Sherat's new book reveals, Germany's philosophers not only failed to stand up to the Nazis, 
but in many cases they actively supported their activities. Yvonne paid a visit to our studios recently to explain to me how these pillars of academia were seduced by Hitler. What did the arrival of the Nazis in 1933 mean for philosophers in Germany? Um, It meant a transformation of their working conditions, transformation of their jobs, careers. The policy of Aryanisation of the universities was introduced and so um, the Jewish German philosophers were removed from their posts. They were hunted out um, and... Besides being hunted out of their posts, uh, that that happened in 1933 as soon as Hitler came to power. It was pretty quick, pretty swift changes. Um, And it was a considerable um, percentage of of the academic um, group at the universities. And they were replaced by Aryan philosophers. So that was the first thing that happened in 1933. So the Jewish philosophers were out and I guess a lot of the sort of Aryan Germans came in. Was was there any opposition to this? Did any of the non-Jewish German philosophers stand up for their Jewish colleagues? No, that's what's striking. The um, Jewish scholar Max Weinreich, in his book Hitler's Professors, which was published just after the war, um, talks about the fact that there was no opposition at all, and he looked very hard to find it. So, um, and at this stage, there were no penalties. This wasn't... Um, as Hitler's reign was consolidated and he increased his power, the, the persecution obviously increased and the measures became more violent into the late 30s and 40s. But at this stage, um, when everything was new, there were possibilities and there weren't um, huge pressures on the Aryan philosophers. They could have protested, they could have um, written letters, uh, just even done fairly civilised forms of protest, but there was nothing and he, he looked hard and found no records of any protest. And, and even at this early stage, there were quite a few repellent aspects about the Nazi regime. And it seems surprising that philosophers who you think are upholders of moral standards wouldn't have protested at all. Well, I think there are two different groups. There are a lot of the Jewish-German philosophers mm. and Jewish-German intellectuals in general were extremely good. These were very sophisticated people. And they were working at a very high standard and producing... Um, extraordinary material. They were very creative, very gifted, very talented people. Um, So there may have been some envy from the other colleagues and once they were ousted, some very mediocre academics um, got the opportunity for rapid promotions. So I guess it wasn't in their interests to protest. There were also some of the people who were promoted were already ideological Nazis. So people like Alfred Baumler, who described as Nazi hacks, these are pretty mediocre um, academics writing pretty trite, trite material and they're suddenly promoted to professorships um, and chairs at top universities. But they're, they're ideological. They supported Hitler even before Hitler came into power. So they're pro-Nazi moves. It's just a, a shift from moving the liberal democratic, um, moving liberal de- democratic and left-wing academics and replacing them with, with Nazi supporters. And so some of the lesser philosophers saw it as an opportunity for them to advance their careers. Mm. But Germany also at this time has some of the world's foremost philosophers who already would have been in fairly high positions, people such as Heidegger. For them, was there no opposition as well? There was no opposition from Heidegger or Karl Schmitt, who was um, in jurisprudence. But Heidegger, of course, was quite young at this stage, and he was 
a growing name. He hadn't reached the standard of international fame, but he was he was the big up and coming philosopher, and he was obviously a talented, intelligent man. And his perhaps is the most shocking story because of his lack of. He he writes about the human condition. He writes about being. He writes about what it is to be human. He writes in the broadest sense about ethics in his metaphysical works, and he's the sort of person that one would think would be emblematic of the sort of person who ought to be able to resist, at least think critically about Nazism and be repulsed by it. I think one of the, um, if if you look deeper into uh, Heidegger's work, he has, he shares um, a lot of the twisting of that folk and romantic German tradition. And so Heidegger, part of his affiliation with the Nazis is ideological in a misconstrued sense. He didn't like urbanisation, he didn't like democracy, he didn't like the West, he didn't like industrialisation, commerce, capitalism. He liked that sort of Germanic soul as as he saw it and the idea of the German nation as built upon a love of nature, a sort of romantic naturalism. Um, And looking to those sort of folkloric medieval roots, quite often romanticised, and but many conservative Germans were still critical of of the Nazis, and it, it's interesting that Heidegger, you, you could, the, the Germans had a sort of fake romanticism, um, and Heidegger really should have seen through that. But it was everything was flattering him and pushing him in that direction, and he he did terribly well out of the rise of the Nazis. He got very excited by it. Was, was part of the problem the fact that the Nazi movement wasn't as far from the philosophy of the day as perhaps it should have been? Um, I think the Nazis manipulated the philosophy of the day. There were elements in the philosophy of the day that had nationalistic elements, but nationalists and German conservatives and German romantics, there were plenty of them who opposed the Nazis. But the Nazis did their very best to usurp that tradition, to manipulate it and contort it, and to create this sort of very... Uh, crude ideology based upon it and there were those that opposed it those who didn't sell out to it in their work at least they didn't actually actively oppose but they weren't sort of completely seduced by the way Heidegger was and Heidegger embraced it was excited by it jumped at the opportunity and and used every opportunity he could to relish and support Hitler. Later on in the Nazi era the kind of atrocities got far worse and there's clearly no doubt during the time of the war that the Nazi regime was doing absolutely terrible things Did the philosophers then turn their back on Hitler and the regime? The philosophers who'd been promoted to their posts by the Nazis continued to embrace and support um, Hitler's regime. They um, supported the war. There were even departments created that created um, the rubric of the philosophy of war so that you could actually create a philosophy that justified war and you could draw on, draw again, misconstruing thinkers like Hegel and other great German minds and use them to glorify war and to write rationalizations that war somehow purified the German nation. It somehow captured that warrior spirit. So there was a great romanticizing of war, which philosophers helped to endorse. There were whole departments which were based on racial studies, not just philosophers, but biologists, eugenicists, anthropologists. Um, so there was a whole study of um, the whole of the university was transformed by the Nazis and there were whole departments which meticulously studied the Jew and turned him into an object of, of curiosity and, of course, thus externalising and 
detaching um, and dehumanising him. And philosophers added to that with their own canon. So even when they might have known that there was mass killing going on by the Nazi regime, that even still the philosophers weren't coming out in opposition? No, they were endorsing. Um, they were people like Alfred Rosenberg were stating it's um, the Jews are the enemy, it's a question of them or us. They saw it as a legitimate struggle and that the Jew was the enemy. He was actively voiced as the enemy. And whether philosophers, they certainly, many of them, many of the Nazi philosophers embraced the anti-Semitic philosophy, um, did nothing to oppose it. And there's no evidence of them questioning the inhuman treatment of the Jews. And even after the war ended, there's no evidence of any apology from Heidegger. Why did it, why did it matter so much that the philosophers didn't oppose the Nazi regime? I think one starts to question the worth of intellectual activity. Um, and uh, philosophy stems from the moral sciences, so it, it's an investigation of the human condition. It looks at ethics, it looks at politics, it looks at society. Um, and some philosophers, like Theodorno, the exiled Jewish philosopher, talk about the importance of criticism and reflection, the ability to stand back and reflect on society as being one of the most important intellectual faculties. And if philosophers don't have that, then how can ordinary people have it? It's supposed to be what their whole discipline is about, the ability to step back and look at um, patterns of behaviour, um, to be able to see through the manipulation, to be able to see through the, the PR, if you like, and see what's really going on and look at the power play, look at the separate the self-interest of the, the people who are pushing and peddling these ideologies from, from the human condition. And when you get such an extreme system, you've got the Holocaust. If, if you've got philosophers who can't even reflect critically on a society that's creating the Holocaust as it's happening around them, then one has to question what the worth of their philosophy is. Um, but of course, I don't want to make this an anti-intellectual, anti-philosophers. The, the first part of the book deals with the Nazi philosophers. The second part of the book looks at the Jewish-German philosophers. And of course, intellectuals did use their minds, and they did use their minds to criticise the Nazi regime. And there was a huge intellectual um, resistance to Hitler, but not from within the German population itself. Up until the 40s, when you have you do have thinkers like Kurt Huber, the philosopher Kurt Huber, who was also a member of the White Rose, who did resist the Nazis. And he was an Aryan, conservative, German, folkloric philosopher, exactly the sort of person that the Nazis wanted to recruit. Um, and he refused. He refused to collect folk music and analyse the folk tradition of, of Germany in order to support the Nazi cause. He refused to do that. He saw the inhumanity of the Nazi regime and he resented it and he resisted under the breath with witty, sarcastic comments um, and as time went by he his resistance grew stronger and stronger and he did act along with the right white rose so there were pockets of resistance and there were smaller numbers of, of philosophers towards the end but the number was absolutely tiny and Kurt, Kurt Huber is is one of the few figures I mean most of the resistance of course was the German Jewish philosophers who were either exiled hunted down killed so they weren't in Germany to resist um, but amongst the Aryans, looking through the archives and the research, it's absolutely astonishing how much support there was and the absence of almost no resistance. And this must have helped give legitimacy to the Nazi regime. That, was that one of the reasons why the Nazis courted the philosophers? I think the Nazis courted academics in general. They transformed the universities and they made the universities 
um, produce a whole canon of, of philosophy, biology, geography, history that 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 eulogized and created a sort of truth regime for the for the Nazi academics. Um, and philosophers went along with this. And yes, of course, it, it, it seriously legitimized. And it didn't just sort of, they weren't passive in that they were pursuing their academic studies and as a byproduct legitimizing Hitler. They actually actively went out of the way to, to um, carry favor with the Nazis. And they competed with each other to get the promotions um, and to be the person who had the most to say and support Hitler. And Hitler himself, as, as I remember reading in your article, thought of himself as something of a, of a philosopher too. Did he take some of his own worldview from some of these philosophers? He did. And here we, we have to be careful because, of course, when he's using philosophers in the past, he's usurping their ideas and they're not there to counter his crude interpretations. I started off looking at Mein Kampf um, and I was quite surprised as I looked through volume one and then again in volume two, and then I looked through his speeches, which are collected, the speeches to his generals, which have been collected in reports from friends and colleagues and other biographical material. And I was surprised to find how much he claimed to be drawing on the philosophers of the past, again, to legitimise himself and his arrogance in assuming that he understood their ideas. So he'd throw away quotes about Kant and Hegel and romantic thinkers like Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, and try to create this image for himself as a philosopher Führer. And of course, Alfred Rosenberg also saw himself as the philosopher and was even nicknamed the philosopher by the Nazis. So it's clear they took philosophy very seriously as an organisation. Oh yes, I think the German, the philosophy holds a status in Germany, which it doesn't in this country. It's... Um, just looking, it's not a subject that runs through school curriculum. It's not a subject that's done to O and A level in, in this GCSEs and A level. But in Germany, it's a canonical subject. So you have to think of philosophy as being more like history or literature and figures like Hegel and Nietzsche in the German um, parlance are more akin to, say, Shakespeare or somebody like that. So they, they're, they're huge figures. And, and so after the war had finished when there was no longer a pressure from a Nazi regime or any potential pressure from the Nazi regime on these philosophers, did they then recant some of their views? No, and that's what's very striking. A small number of them, the, when the Allied committees came in to denazify um, the German universities, a small number of them did go quiet, um, but the majority of them got lawyers to um, defend them and they produced cases to defend themselves and to to whitewash their pasts to minimise, pretended they didn't have much involvement. But the major figures, particularly Heidegger, there is no public apology um, and there's no public acknowledgement of the role in his past. He tried to duck and dive and hide his past. And at the time, the evidence didn't come through to show how strong his involvement had been. So when he did his interviews, he, he was actually believed and taken seriously. And as time went by, it's become uncovered, particularly as a recent book by Emmanuel Fai, where he shows the extent of Heidegger's support for the Nazis and his covering up of that afterwards, but also this lack of an apology. I presume most of these philosophers were able to continue their work after the war relatively unimpeded. A small number of them, they, they managed to defend themselves and reduce their sentences. They might have been expelled temporarily from the universities, um, or they carried carried on working at the universities and went quiet. But the thing that's astonishing is uncovering um, how many philosophers 
in the departments throughout the German universities were actually reinstated to their posts. So the former Nazis came to dominate the German university faculties into the 60s and the 70s. And I have to say, this is something I wasn't aware of as a student studying philosophy. I wasn't aware. One has the image in, in the UK that the Allies won the war in 1945. That's it. That's the end. But of course, the, the people who supported the people who were part of the Nazi regime were the people who were running the country. They were the people who were running the universities. They had the networks. They were very deeply entrenched in that society. The opposition had been marginalised, killed, fled. Um, and so it was very hard for them to come back. And we see the plight of somebody like Theodore Adorno when he tries to return. He was ousted from his post for being a Jew. And when he comes, tries to return to his post after the war and into the 50s, he has to struggle because the faculties are dominated by Nazis and Nazi sim- former Nazis and former Nazi sympathisers. And there's still a seething anti-Semitism. And indeed, Max Horkheimer actually resigned his post because of the continuing anti-Semitic feeling. Karl Jaspers resigned too and left because he, he couldn't tolerate it. Some of these philosophers, particularly people at Heidegger, are still fated internationally as some of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. Has there not been any sort of international backlash towards some of these figures? Now it's come out more and more about their Nazi involvement. Um, I think there's a growing body of work that's being produced recently, but it's interesting how recent it is. It really is the last decade or so. There were a few studies done and there were debates, but they were sort of they were quite narrow debates within academia. It wasn't it wasn't really very broadly known. It certainly wasn't part of the curriculum. Heidegger's philosophy was taught at the universities, but the, his past wasn't mentioned, his Nazi involvement wasn't mentioned. And there is an argument, some philosophers, that we shouldn't look at the context of philosophy, we should only look at their work, at their texts, at their ideas, that their lives are irrelevant, and that somehow it's sort of impure to look at the life of a philosopher, we should just purely concentrate on the text. Um, and that sort of attitude, of course, is very convenient for somebody like Heidegger because that means his philosophy can be taught in and of itself with no reference to his past. But personally, if I'm a student being taught metaphysical and ethical arguments at university, I'd quite like to know that the person that I'm supposed to be looking up to as a figure of grand wisdom is a a former Nazi supporter, because I think that impacts tremendously upon how you relate to his work. Because then I suppose you see their ideas in practice. Absolutely, and I think the relationship between context, between life, between ideas lived... um, is huge, and in a you know, in the case where there's such a glaring chasm between somebody who's who's professing to understand some of the greatest profundities of life, but is unable to say anything critical about the Holocaust, one has to question the worth of reading such a person. Or if one is going to read them, one has to read them in the full knowledge that this is is where they're coming from. Do you think because people such as Heidegger are still so important to philosophy that this the story you're telling is one some people might not want to hear? I'm sure, and there's a very interesting twist to all of this, which is the Jewish, German-Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, who, of course, was the lover. She had an affair with Heidegger when she was a student, um, and the affair was broken off by Heidegger, leaving her quite traumatised, that she was very vitriolic and very fervently Jewish um, and did lots of powerful work, wrote some fantastic books and critiques, But when she met up with Heidegger again, she seemed to have been sort of seduced or some sort of nostalgia, some powerful emotions were at work. And she actually became one of his supporters. So ironically, after the war, when Heidegger's career looked like it might have been in tatters, 
in after 45, she was one of the people who picked him up and helped him and networked using her Jewish networks to support Heidegger's cause. And she's one of the people responsible, along with Jean-Paul Sartre, for turning him into such a huge international figure. That's just fascinating. Do, do you think it was because she wasn't fully aware of his activities during the Nazi period? I think... Um, if she'd wanted to be aware and she'd wanted to remain critical, there was plenty of evidence for her to do so. I think some emotional nostalgia, some bond to him, um, was possibly stronger that you get a sort of Romeo-Juliet type story where the emotions are stronger than the, the political and ethical gulf, which I think raises questions about Arendt because on the one hand, it's perhaps outside of public scrutiny what her personal feelings were, but that she then actually promotes Heidegger to the extent that she did seems like a huge U-turn and I think one has to then look critically at Arendt's motives and also at her ethics in doing such a thing. Just because she was a Jewish philosopher doesn't mean she can speak for all Jewish philosophers and all... Absolutely, or indeed for all Jews Um, and the Jewish community in the United States did turn against her um, after the Eichmann trial and her comments about the banality of evil... But I think also um, there was less focus on on Heidegger, but the Heidegger issue is interesting. It's also interesting that when she analyses the cause of Nazism, which of course she does at great length in her epics, when she analyses the causes of Nazism, she very much points the finger at um, ordinary uneducated people, at banal bureaucrats. Um, and she leaves out of the question the whole idea of intellectuals. And even when Max Weinrich writes his book, Nazi Professors, looking at Hitler's professors and those people in the universities who collaborated, she's completely silent. She doesn't even review the book. I guess she just didn't want to know, really. No, it was, it, it was too close to home. And the question there is, were there personal, strong emotional ties, as with Heidegger, Or, again, there were these incredibly strong networks of Nazis in Germany. Was she frightened of treading on people's toes? I mean, she seems to be a person who wasn't scared of courting controversy, but at the same time, she was curiously silent about intellectuals' role in the Nazi phenomenon. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That was Yvonne Sherat. Her book, Hitler's Philosophers, is out now, published by Yale University Press. And you can also read an article by Yvonne in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. And as I mentioned earlier, it's available in all good news agents on the Kindle, the iPad, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Now, we'd love to know what you think about the podcast. And as such, we've put together a special survey for our listeners. You can find it at historypodcast.questionpro.com. And as an added inducement, we're offering an iPad mini for one lucky respondent. And unfortunately, that prize is only available to UK residents, but we would still be really keen to get your views wherever you're based. And the address for that, again, is historypodcast.questionpro.com. A project to create a Bronze Age boat, the result of a collaboration between the National Maritime Museum Cornwall and the University of Exeter, is set to reach completion in the next few weeks. Our section editor, Matt Elton, spoke to project leader Robert van der Noort about the experience and what it can tell us about life thousands of years ago. What first inspired you to build this replica boat? Well, uh, the history of trying to build an, a Bronze Age sewn plank boat that looks like one that comes from North Ferriby in the Humber goes back many, many years. And it, it actually originated with uh, the discoverer of the boat himself, Ted Wright. Uh, I got to know Ted about 20 years ago when he was in his 70s. And at that point, he had his dream, but, you know, it is a costly affair. Um, th- these are big boats, and to and to build one, the, the wood is expensive, the, the the shipwright you need is expensive. And so it, he, it was a dream he, he passed on to me. And when I found an opportunity to realize it, um, I grabbed it by, with both hands, really. Oh, fantastic. So it's built on a specific um, kind of boat that did exist then? Yes. So Ted Wright and his brother, they lived in North Ferriby on the Humber foreshore. They would go out and in 1939, they found planks that was clearly off a boat and they started to excavate bits and pieces and it took them a very long time to do it. Um, they, They got the boat out in the 1960s, so 30 years later, um, and then started to work on it, thinking about how the whole boat would have looked like. So what they found was about a third of a boat. They first thought it was a Viking boat, but uh, as radiocarbon dating became uh, more widely used and, and affordable, they learned that it was actually a Bronze Age boat. Um, they went back on the foreshore lots and lots of times, find, found other bits of boats and bits of other boats, and from that they drew an, a concept drawing of uh, what we now call Ferriby One, uh, which is one of the oldest proper plank boats in Europe. Uh, and that is what we are trying to reconstruct. And you mentioned there the size. How big is this replica? Well, the, the boat itself is over 15 metres in length. Okay. Uh, and it is, so it is, it is quite an, you know, I mean, for people who go out, who sail themselves, they will know, you know, it's a 50-footer nearly. Um, this is a serious big boat, but it is, it is built very much in the shape of a canoe. And the reason for that is that this boat was paddled. Um, and to make sure that the people who paddle the boat all uh, paddle in the same direction, the boat has to be quite long and thin and, and, and quite straight. 
Um, and, and so it is an, a 60 or 50 meter long boat. Uh, it's about two meters wide at, at its beam, at its widest point, and maybe one, 1.3 meters high. Okay, and how much does it weigh? Well, when, when we started the work, we, we used three trees, uh, three oak trees from North Lincolnshire, so from pretty close to the Humber. Together, those three trees weigh 20 tons, 20,000 wow. kilograms. Now, we've been chipping away and hacking away at these planks, and we think that the boat, we haven't been able to weigh it, but we think that the boat is between four and a half and five tons, so say four and a half to five thousand kilograms. Uh, so we got rid of about 15,000 kilograms of oak. Um, and it's made of oak, you said, and then it's a sewn plank boat, isn't it? Is that right? Yes. I mean, that, the, the whole funny thing about this, this plank boat is this, this the first time people build plank boats and to build a plank boat is build a stronger boat and a boat that is more suited to seafaring however in in britain they don't actually start using nails or, or the wooden equivalent the tree nails for at least another thousand years so how did they resolve it well they they used um branches from the yew tree and and used that to stitch or sew the planks together and so we call this a sewn plank boat for that reason and that was the only way they held it together was by sewing these branches. Yes, and I can tell you, we, we you know, we've we've done hundreds of of these stitches now, and and these branches of the yew tree are incredibly strong. Um, you know, once you've put them in place, there's just absolutely nothing that will move them anymore. So it, they they really must have tried and tested different plants and different trees and come up with uh, the branches from the yew tree being incredibly tough. Hmm. Okay. I mean, so what did other, what other sources did you use when you were kind of researching how to design and construct this boat? We've effectively used three sources. So first, it's the the archaeological resource from North Ferriby. Um, they have found not one but three boats from that, or bits of boat from it. Um, and together, we 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 know quite a lot about boat building in the Bronze Age. Then. Since that time, quite a lot of other boats have been found. So, for example, the famous Bronze Age uh, boat from Dover is there. And, and, it, and it has shown us different parts of the boat. And it helps us understanding how people in the Bronze Age built boats. And the third source of, of our information is really the, sh the shipwright who is building the boat for us, uh, Brian Cumby. Brian has built wooden boats and repaired wooden boats all his life. So he has this... You know, he has this ability to find solutions where sometimes the archaeological record doesn't tell us anything. He was involved in the Matthew, is that right? Yes, yes. He, uh, I mean, he's a, uh, he, he is an, a very experienced shipwright who's, who's done many boats. But the, the Matthew is this 15th century John Cabot's uh, boat. He went from Bristol to New Newfoundland. And again, so there are pictures of the, of the Matthew, but there aren't any drawings. So to, to try and find solutions for a historical craft is something he's pretty experienced in. Ah, oh, fantastic. So what tools did you use when you were building the boat? Well, we um, we had replica bronze tools made. So our our boat belongs to the early Bronze Age. At that point, uh, people are using flat axes that are hafted in in uh, timber hafts, and 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 that is what we have used most of the time. I have to admit, uh, towards the end of the project, we run out of time, and we started to use some modern tools to start to make rough outs. But the finishing product is all is all what you know we've used our bronze tools uh, to make. Um, and so, how many people have been involved in the project from start to finish? Do you reckon? <laughs> 
Uh, well over 100 volunteers wow. have come okay. and gone. Not everybody has lasted the project. I have to admit it is hard work. Mm. Um, and I think modern human beings aren't used necessarily to, to stand there with, an, with a bronze axe and you know, work for hours and hours and end. And, yeah. uh, so it is tough, but some people have stuck it out for the length. Some have come and gone. Some have come from great distances. They, um, uh, one of my students has just come back from Norway to help finish the boat. He's just so uh, enthused and dedicated to it. Um, so, and, and, but I think at least 100 volunteers have been working on this boat. And so what would an average day for one of these volunteers be like? What kind of things would they be doing? Well, it, it has to start with uh, squaring the timbers so that you can you can then think about the shape of the plank that has to come out from it. Uh, it's a lot of um, using bronze chisels more than axes, or axes, I should say, more than axes, um, to, to, to shape the planks in the right in the right way. We don't think in the Bronze Age they knew how to steam their planks or they couldn't bend them, they're just too big. Uh, and it's a, so it's a lot of etzing away very gently with the timber uh, and create the shape of it. But then once that is done, you have to lift the timbers into shape. And the heaviest of our timbers are about 800 kilograms. So, you know, you need teamwork all the time to, to work together, fit it. No, it doesn't fit take it out again, uh, adjust it, come back again. And then uh, the very interesting things is about using these these U branches or U witties to stitch the boat. And then in order to ensure that uh, there are not too big gaps between planks, we use uh, moss and a tallow mixture to uh, for corking uh, the gaps between the planks. So so my, my, uh, my, my volunteers probably have an certainly in the beginning of the project there's a lot of hard work uh towards the end it becomes finer more refined more um yeah ex- you know you would have to learn how to work with different kinds of material in terms of what you think this project has helped us learn about kind of bronze age people have, have there been new insights that you've gained as a, as a result of it well, yes. I mean, I have to. You know, when we started, we thought we could build this boat in six months, and we're now in month ten, and we're getting there now. But so, one thing we've learned that uh, it this is a much more complicated project than we actually had envisaged at the beginning. Uh, this this is a serious big boat. It's complicated. It's a three dimensional structure, probably as big as anything they ever built in the Bronze Age. But it it takes incredible ingenuity and it takes incredible um, persistence and perseverance to do that. It needs incredible close teamwork. Uh, as I said, you know, planks are very heavy uh, and if you have no lifting mechanisms, as we, we don't think they really had in the Bronze Age, you know, to lift the plank and just see whether it's the right shape to fit in, in, your, in your boat, uh, that, that kind of close teamwork must have been an absolute essential part of, of building it. I think the third thing is we, we have to put the boat still in the water. Um, but, you know, we can swim. But in the Bronze Age, we don't think people could swim. And it also required, requires an incredible amount of courage to step in a boat you've just built yourself <laughs> and pedal away and then relying that it will all work. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, have you tested it in the water? No, we, we're getting 
we we're very close now to finishing the boat. Um, the top strakes are the last one that go in. Um, so we we think that early February uh, this year we'll put it in the water. Oh, the timber, good luck. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The timber will need to swell a bit because it has been inside and in the dry. But after three four days, I think we can step in the boat and and pedal away. Brilliant. So after you've tested it, this boat's going on display, is that right? Well, the boat has been on display in the museum all through the building project. And part of it was a different way of uh, engaging with uh, the visitors to the National Maritime Museum, Cornwall and Falmouth, you know, to see something actively happening where people could ask the builders, you know, why are you doing this and what what kind of boat are you building? And that has been a great success. Uh, Once the boat is in the water... Um, we won't be able to take it out that easily, but it will be there in the museum. We want to, over the next few months, test it in, in Falmouth Harbour, which is a very big um, natural harbour. And if the boat behaves well, then probably in the middle of uh, this year, we want to take it on a proper sea journey. So it, we will need to train, need to learn to get a crew who can paddle the boat uh, and then take it out to sea at one point. Brilliant. And how do you think the project will develop after that? Are there plans for the future? No, I mean, it, it, it is difficult to know how long the boat will last in, in the, the this kind of state it is in when we will launch it. We just don't know how long the, the used stitches will last. And, and that is part of the interest in this project. Um, it's always been my theory that these, despite the enormous size of these boats, these were not ferries that we used on a daily basis, but these were boats built for a specific journey, uh, a grand tour, if you want. And, and probably when they came back from that grand tour, you know, that community did not need a boat for another, maybe for another generation. So they probably just let it go. Um, and I think we will find out in the next six months whether this is a boat that could be used for a very long period of time or whether actually after six months it comes to its end of its natural life. So it really does tell us a lot about the society that built the boat. Yeah, absolutely, because, because the amount of effort and the amount of work that goes in building it um, relates, of course, in, in its purpose. You know, and, and if it really is true that a boat like this can only be used for one, say, cross, so one journey uh, crossing the Irish Sea or the Channel or the North Sea, uh, and then it starts to fall apart naturally, then it, it just that, you know, the, the importance of these journeys for societies in the Bronze Age will only be greater because, you know, why otherwise would you have put in all that effort to build the boat in the first place? That was Robert van der Noort speaking to Matt Elton. For more on the story, check out the news pages of our February issue, which is out now. And that's about all for this week's episode. You can let us know your thoughts via email, podcast at historyextra.com. And you can, of course, use that email address for any other podcast views you may have. Plus, you can reach us on Twitter, at History Extra, or on Facebook, forward slash History Extra. And that's about all for this week's episode. Next time, we'll be talking about Georgian bankers and medieval kings. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to take our podcast survey, which is at historypodcast.questionpro.com. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 